Welcome back to another episode of The Exceptional Educator from BayTreeBlog.com. I'm Anne-Marie Mori, your host. I am so excited for you to hear today's episode. We're going to be talking to Pete Bowers. Dr. Pete Bowers is the founder of the WordWorks Literacy Center in Ontario, Canada. In his career, he's worked as an elementary school teacher, researcher, writer, worldwide presenter. He's a sought-after speaker in North America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. This summer, I attended one of his workshops here in California and was blown away. Pete transforms spelling and vocabulary instruction into a fascinating opportunity for critical thinking. So what exactly is structured word inquiry, this thing that we're going to be talking about today? Structured word inquiry is an innovative approach to language instruction that teaches the way written English really works. In structured word inquiry, children discover that the English writing system isn't crazy at all. Instead, kids and teachers discover that our writing system is morphophonemic. And what that means, very simply, is that when we write a word, the first purpose of that written word is to represent meaning, morpho, and the second purpose is to represent sound. That's the phonemic aspect. So before we dive in with Pete, let me go over a few vocabulary terms that we're going to be throwing around today. So first off, we're going to be using the term orthography quite a lot. Simply, orthography is simply the writing system of a language. It's our spelling system. So for example, in the word jumped, the orthography of jumped is J-U-M-P-E-D. Now we move into morphology. Uh, Morphology is simply the meaning system of a writing a writing system. And in our example word, jumped, um, the morphology is we have two morphemes. We have jump, J-U-M-P, and the suffix E-D, which means to push oneself into the air. Um, And it means that happened in the past tense. And then finally, phonology, and that is the sound system. Um, In our word jumped, we have five different sounds. J-U-M-P-T. And then finally, we have etymology, which is the study of the origin and evolution of words. Um, And I just looked up jumped in the dictionary, and it came into our language in the 1520s. And some people believe that it was used to imitate the sound when our feet strike the ground. I think structured word inquiry is a really powerful strategy for all students, and especially for students with learning disabilities. Because if we're teaching kids about a writing system that makes sense, it gives them control. It empowers them to learn more. Um, and it really creates a lot of curiosity in the classroom. So I hope you find this as exciting as I do. So join Pete and I in conversation. So welcome. I'm thrilled to have Pete Bowers with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Pete. So I think anyone, Pete, who's um, seen you or heard you talk about structured word inquiry is really struck by your your passion for literacy and for education. So I get the sense that you have a calling for this work. So tell us more about your mission as an educator. Well, the um, the story that I have is, is uh, it, I guess, coming at this from the position of a, a teacher, um, elementary school teacher for 10 years. And nine of those years, having been a terrible speller um, and had little interest in teaching spelling um, and, you know, assumed it was crazy, um, had always struggled with spelling. Uh, you know, I've, I've had many people, you know, tell me that I'm dyslexic and I'm, I'm sure that I, I am. 
but for me, it was not a serious problem. I just was a, couldn't, you know, if there was two ways to spell a word, I had to flip a coin, but, um, but my, I didn't struggle with reading. I think I'm, I'm a slow reader. I would laugh because when, uh, my wife and I would be reading a magazine, we were traveling or something and she'd be ready to turn the page and I'd only be halfway through the first page. And I thought I, it can't be that people can read that fast. Like I, I honestly assumed she must be skipping the, you know, or something, but it just turns out I'm a slow reader. And how would I know? Um, but I didn't struggle with the way that is, you know, it is a serious issue for, for many folks. Um, but that I think allowed me the fact that I had never understood it. Couldn't understand how anybody ever remembered how to spell words that when I first encountered this real spelling and saw a matrix and a word sum make sense of spellings that I had always thought were crazy. Um, and I would, you know, words that were just my own personal bugaboos that I couldn't remember. Um, but also words that everybody I'd ever encountered, you know, any resource had already had always said were crazy. The fact that they could be explained in a way that was self-evident as soon as you saw the structure, I thought, well, this is crazy. How, how could that be? Um, and I, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I saw a 45 minute session and I, I talked to the author afterwards and, and, you know, when I told him that I always been a terrible speller, he said, ah, very, that'll, that'll be great. You'll really, you really get this stuff then. And uh, I ended up getting the tool, this toolbox and, uh, got my school to, to, to get it. And I started doing stuff with majors and word sums. And I honestly didn't think that, I assumed that it was going to break down. Like I'd never met a teacher resource that didn't. Um, and, uh, so I went back to my grade four class and, um, I told, uh, you know, the kids that, well, this is a bit crazy. I, I'm, this, that, I always think it's kind of a funny story. I was teaching in Indonesia at the time at an international school. And so I just think it's hilarious that I had to go teach in Indonesia to go to a teaching conference in Kuala Lumpur to meet a guy who was born in Egypt, grew up and trained in England, but lived in France to figure out how English spelling worked. <laughs> so it was a roundabout, it was a roundabout journey, but you got there. Got indeed, there indeed, yeah. indeed. And if I hadn't gone to Indonesia, I wouldn't understand English spelling, but there you go. Um, but the thing is that, um, when you, so I go to my kids and I say, I met this guy who's trying to, he's, he's claiming that English spelling makes sense. Let's test him out. Like, I didn't believe that it was going to work, but I could tell the kids that he's, it has already made sense of many words that I always thought were crazy. So there's something here, but let's see how it goes. And so we started to use these um, tools, these linguistic tools and investigated words and, um, and we, every once in a while, we'd think we'd find a, a crack in, in the conventions that he was, he was uh, presenting. And so we'd email him and then we'd get an email back. And it would always be that it wasn't that there was an exception. It was that we encountered a place where um, there was a deeper structure to understand. And once you understood that, not only did you take care of the word that raised that question, you now have a means of taking and understanding many, many more words. So, uh, so for an example, there's a convention that uh, vowel suffixes replace single silent E's. And you can really say that, it, that vowel suffixes always replace single silent E's 
However, when you run, you'll run into places where it appears there's an exception. And it's not really an exception though, when you understand. And for example, one that always comes up is a word like noticeable. So when you're working with the assumption that, that uh, this testing this hypothesis, and then you see noticeable, you think, wait a second, you can't, if you replace that E, you have N-O-T-I-C, and then the E should be replaced from notice with the A-B-L-E, but right. that isn't how you spell noticeable. Now, this just turns out, and this is one of those places where you might need a graphic, um, but it just turns out this is a word sum that takes two steps for the process to resolve. Most word sums take one step. But when you, if you do that, you do first step, you do replace a single silent but then you end up with a spelling that is not possible in English because the C grapheme can only represent if there's an E, I, or Y after it. Right, so you'd have noticable. Yeah, exactly, it'd be noticable. Right. So since there's no English word noticable, this, right. this spelling isn't allowed to represent the word that English speakers know is pronounced noticeable. So the next step of the word sum is to reinsert the E for the phonological reason. And it's not, so it's not that it's an exception, it's just that now we can learn that actually it turns out if you have a system that's complex, and English orthography is complex, but that's not saying it's disorganized. There's lots of very organized, complex things. Um, and if you have, an, if you have a, a complex system that has multiple conventions occurring, of course you're gonna have places where two conventions bump into each other. Therefore, you have, an organized system would have to have a means of resolving those conflicts. And it does. So sometimes you need to, to now, so now you encounter that with the kids. Now you realize uh, sometimes there's word sums that take two steps. And that means that there's all sorts of other places where it feels like there's an exception to some convention. But no, it's once you, now you're used to having these interesting ones. And now these ones are the most interesting ones. They're, they're not the ones that you have to memorize. The, the, they're the ones that are the fascinating ones because the story is a little bit more interesting. Right. Um, but you have to go through that process. So anyways, the, the story with the kids was that every time this happened, the kids were discovering things and it just, I could not fathom what was going on. The kids were fighting over dictionaries. I, I the, one story I was tell is that there was like, I was working with a kid and uh, we got on a word, we got on a word sum we got stuck on we couldn't, we were curious, so we needed to look at the etymology. And so we had these books I'd never had in my classrooms before, these etymological references. And, and there was one on the table. We now had a reference table because we were, had use for them. And uh, a kid goes over to the, the table and uh, he shouts out, who's got the Edo? And I didn't even know what he was saying. And then I realized that the word origins dictionary that we had was called that. It was a big black word origins dictionary, and and the name at the bottom said John Ado. So my grade four kids had come to call this big book with small type, intended for university kind of courses, the Ado. I was like, what is going on? Another time, a kid was I wasn't. He was over the dictionaries, and I hear this big thwack because he tosses the dictionary in the ground and he shouts. This dictionary sucks. It doesn't have any Latin roots. <laughs> and I'm just like, what is going on here? Like, I, I never taught such that, I don't believe before I ran into real spelling that I probably ever taught in such a way that my students independently chose to go to a dictionary 
to resolve a question that they themselves had. I would have had assignments that made them use dictionaries, but they never did it on their own. And all of a sudden I'm having kids fighting over the good dictionaries and throwing dictionaries on the ground because they, he's right, it did suck. <laughs> you, you shouldn't have a dictionary that doesn't have root origin. Of course, that dictionary set on a children's dictionary. And, Anytime you have a children's dictionary, they just keep, they they don't include all the words that are interesting, and in, in none of the etymology is they're just they're just really the worst dictionaries for for kids are the ones that say children's dictionaries. But anyways, so I, this was it was just transforming what was going on, and it was transforming my class. My wife was teaching grade three, another friend was teaching grade four, and we were just what is going on? Um, so that was and we, it turned out it, the thing was. And this came up actually on this last series of workshops is, you know, when, when you try to, um, when you come to a school that doesn't know anything about this stuff and, you know, someone has got you there for some reason, there's a lot of reason for skepticism. Right. Um, you know, teachers have seen a billion programs come down the pipe and, and, you know, it's very reasonable to say, to think I'm just going to, I'll just go to the session and the guy will say things and then I'll, I'll let him go away and then the program will go away and then I don't have to do anything because I don't want to spend a bunch of energy learning a new program that's going to disappear in a couple of years. Right. <coughs> I certainly sympathize with that attitude. Um, but what people, I've had a number of people tell me that this is, and they said it with this kind of dazed sense, like this isn't a program. And, and the thing is, once you, um, once you yourself are able to gain an understanding of something that you always thought didn't make sense, you realize this isn't, it's not a program. It's just science. <laughs> and it's like, it, and, and it's this idea that, that it turns out if we apply scientific principles to, to trying to understand spelling, instead of accepting assumptions about it, we can make sense of it. Um, and that's, so people start to get a little, you know, that's the door in to understanding. Now people get to choose whether they take it or not, but if they themselves have an experience of understanding why does it spell like it is, or business, or rough, or laugh, or, you know, any of the millions of words that people think are crazy, um, you can't ununderstand that, you know, and, and so the message that I would say is that this, this real, the key here is that it's, it's just the, it's a, it's not actually a radical idea to apply scientific inquiry to understand a complex domain. Right. That's, so, that's, yeah. So give us an example of a word that maybe when you were teaching, when you first started that you would have said, oh guys, this is just crazy. You're going to have to memorize it. But then when you look at it more scientifically, you might be able to uncover that there's actually some really well-organized reasons for why it's spelled the way it is. Well, we, yeah, we were talking a little earlier and, and, and it might be good to go back to that frame. So um, when, I, when I try to introduce this to, um, to teachers and kids, to get your head around the fact that this stuff that spelling could make sense, I often just ask people, toss me your favorite quintessential examples of crazy English spellings. And so they toss them all up. And when they do, um, they all, somebody always suggests a homophone pair um, or, or triplet or whatever. And 
as soon as one person tosses one out, then all of a sudden a whole bunch more come. And so, for example, I hear, hears, hear, you know, come over here and I hear you. Um, so those two words are convenient to take on. But I basically say, as soon as we say this, well, why have you given me these homophones? What is it about these words um, that makes them crazy? And of course they say, because they sound the same, they should be spelled the same. So that's a good way to, actually, that statement is a way of identifying the underlying assumption, which is that the primary job of English spelling is to represent the sounds of words. So, okay, so fair enough that that's, yeah, if that's true, it would be crazy for these things to be spelled differently, wouldn't it? Well, let's just do a little test, like brainstorm as many homophones as you can. So you get a room of people brainstorming homophones, give them a minute, and then you ask them to look at them and, uh, and find out, well, how many of those uh, homophones that you wrote down happen to also share the same spelling? And almost none do. Um, they happen, bear weight and bear in the woods, and, and there's, there's a few others, but they're extremely uncommon compared to homophones being spelled differently. Well, that's because that's, you, at that point, as a scientist, you should start be thinking, wait a second, maybe my assumption isn't right. And so that's the first, if you're a scientist and you have a hypothesis, that the primary job of spelling is to represent the sound of words, and then you test it, and it turns out most homophones are spelled differently, that's when you should stop blaming the data and start blaming your hypothesis. And, and what you're supposed to do then is come up with an alternative hypothesis. Because it turns out, when you look at it, the evidence is right there. Homophones typically are not spelled the same, and if the primary job of spelling was to represent sound, if you ask people, well, how would homophones have to be spelled? They would have to be spelled the same. And they're not. So now that's supposed, what that's supposed to be is a cue for scientists or anybody to say, maybe we should question the first assumption. That but English that, spelling represents sound. That's right. And, and so what's an alternative hypothesis? Well, when we look at the word here and here, you know, come over here um, and I can hear you. If you ask them, why are they spelled differently? They, they will say very quickly, well, because they different words or because they mean different things. And it's a fascinating thing because they've just picked these words as examples of spelling being crazy because they should be spelled the same. But when you ask them, why are they not spelled the same? They say, because they mean different things. So this would be sort of a big takeaway for teachers, right? Is that our writing system isn't just representing sound. It's also representing meaning. And, and if we come at it from that angle, things start to really make sense. Well, exactly. And, and, and the way that, that the alternative hypothesis, so we first had a hypothesis, hypothesis we'll call it hypothesis one, mm -hmm. the primary job of spelling is to represent sound. And that hypothesis isn't standing up to the evidence in this case, and it doesn't stand up the evidence in all sorts of places, but we're just talking about this little case. Now, so now you're supposed to come up with an alternative hypothesis. Well, what did you just say? What was the reason that they're spelled differently? Meaning. Ah, so that's a good source for hypothesis number two, that the primary job of spelling is meaning representation. Now that turns out to be the linguistic definition of any orthography. I only know anything about English, but, um, 
but that actually is a linguistic definition of an orthography. An orthography is the writing system that evolved to represent the meaning of a language to those who already speak it. It's not an, it didn't, the people who were doing the reading and the writing, the people who were, for whom, you know, it, it didn't, spelling did just arrive fully formed, right? Like we didn't always spell the words the way we spell them now. And things happened over time that evolved by the readers and writers. Well, the readers and the writers were English speakers. They, they didn't make choices based on what they thought would make it easy for a non-English speaker to learn to read or write. And it wasn't kids. It wasn't, it wasn't invented. It wasn't conforming to things that they thought would make it easy to learn to read or write. It was so that when you read text, you could make sense of the, the meaning of the text, whether you spoke with an, whatever English you spoke, you know, even just in England, the range of pronunciations was huge. So if we just followed sound, everybody would have different spellings. So there was a, there was a reason to make meaning representation primary. Now it's really important to emphasize that this saying that um, the primary job of spelling is to, is the representation meaning is not saying that the conventions by which sound is represented are unimportant. In fact, they're crucial. In fact, they are one of the means by which meaning is represented. So you have to understand how graphemes, the conventions by which graphemes represent phonemes. And they're incredibly well organized, but they're organized within a larger structure. You can't know which grapheme to use for the word please for the long vowel unless you think of related words, because it turns out the base P-L-E-A-S-E also represents, it is pronounced differently in the word pleasure or pleasant. And, but we don't spell that part of the word differently just because the pronunciation changes. We keep the E-A and the S in all of those spellings because the E-A can represent the long or the short vowel and the S can represent all sorts of things, this and the Z and the Z. Um, that we have in, in those words. So the spelling stays the same even when the pronunciation changes. In the homophones, we see when the pronunciation can be the same, we make the spelling different. In both of these cases, the, the clear overriding mechanism that had to have been in play to allow for that evolution of English spelling is a primary purpose of meaning representation. But underneath it, there is conventions by which which graphemes we can use and we need to understand those but so that i'm going on so i should stop no no i think that makes perfect sense so pete i've got a question for you so most of the time when we have say an elementary age student and they say Anne marie how do i spell this word um we would usually say just sound it out honey mm. what would you say instead well the thing that's really interesting is that um there, there's, you know, you kind of have to back up a little bit. Um, the thing, here's something people could just try. If a kid miscues on a word, if they're reading a word and they, you know, the word says uh, cried and the kid says carried. Um, what we need to recognize is that you know, kids do this all the time. And when teachers and parents pull their hair out at it and the, but we have to think about why are they doing that? Well, one thing is I would get bet that when the kid makes that wild guess, they haven't actually processed the word yet. 
maybe that they don't know the word, in which case sounding out would be useless. If you sound out, a, if you, if you, even if you decode it properly and say the word, if you don't know the word, it's done nothing for you. And you have no means of accepting or rejecting your hypothesis of the word because you don't know it. But if you actually do know the word and you've made a wild guess based on hitting the first letter, what we need to do is help the kid process the word before we find out if they can read it or not. So instead of sounding it out, I just say, well, could you spell that word? And if you ask a kid to spell it, um, you're asking a kid to do something that they won't fail at because they, if they're reading, they know the names of the letters. So you're not, you're not inviting them to fail. You're inviting them to succeed. Now, by spelling it, you force them to process the actual orthography there. And it, I'm, it's been reported back to me over and over again that when people do this, even before they learn conventions for spelling out that I recommend, um, and I'll, I'll send you, make sure you have links for, for this stuff, but um, even just naming letters, teachers report back to me that, my God, it works 50% of the time. So 50% of the time that the kid made a wild guess when they spelled it, they actually knew the word. So what, they, what, we're, what we're realizing is that they needed, they needed a way to focus on the orthography itself and, the, and, and name it. And if by naming the spelling, by spelling the letters, and ideally spelling the graphemes and the morphemes, um, they all of a sudden realize they know the word. And I'll, I'll have, I've used this strategy that you suggested. So I'll have a student read a word um, and the word is supposed to be form and they say from, mm -hmm. and then you say, could you spell that for me? And as soon as they do that and they see, mm -hmm. you know, they see F um, O R M, yeah. then all of a sudden they, they go, Oh, and they self correct themselves. It's fascinating that, Oh, it's so quick. Time. Yeah. And, and then you do it for a little while and then you say, you know what? I noticed that when I ask you, when you get stuck on a word and you spell it out, you seem, you correct, you seem to find the answer most times. So why don't you try it when I'm not there? It's a strategy they don't actually need you for. Um, a story that I often tell was I was working with some grade eight kids one time that were reading like at a grade four level. And uh, I noticed something interesting with the word uh, react. Um, so this is another place to be good to have text. So you can you imagine you can see the R and the E and the A and the C and the T on the page. Now I just I said it that way on purpose, um, as opposed to announcing its structure. But if you see those letters on the page, and I just presented it to a kid, and said, "Well, can you tell me what that word is?" And the kid did exactly what he'd been trained to do. He sounded up from left to right, mm -hmm. and so he goes reeked, reeked, reeked. And so he's actually done exactly what he's taught. Sounded out left to right, decoded it to uh, what it could be, what those, how those letters could be pronounced, reached at a pronunciation that was a word he had in his oral vocabulary, and he was totally confident that he'd actually read the word. But of course, he's totally wrong. So I don't correct him, I just say, ah, so you mean um, your socks reeked from playing soccer yesterday? And he says, yeah. Now, fortunately, we had just, you know, within a couple of days, investigated the ED suffix. And so we had a chart on the wall with, the, you know, the angle brackets and the dash and the ED and showing that the ED is pronounced in words like jumped, in words like played, and id in words like painted. So we already knew that there's three pronunciations of this ED suffix, again, meaning over phonology. Um, and... 
I could say to that meant that I could say to him, well, that can't be reeked because you mean reeked from playing soccer yesterday. So that would mean we would have had to use an ED, not a T. Um, so I, so I said, well, could you have a go again, but this time just see if you see any basis prefix or suffixes. And he, he said it perfectly. He said, ah, react. And that ah was him seeing the base ACT. And as soon as you see act, you can no longer think of the EA as a digraph because you see act and now you can see the prefix RE. And so now you don't confuse this E and an A for an EA. And what's really nice is to contra contrast this word react with the word reach. When you look at reach right below react, you see they differ by one letter, but they are only similar by one grapheme. So the R, they each have an R grapheme, but it, he, and this is a good introduction to spelling out. If I spell the word react for a kid who's stuck on it, I would say, oh, it's R-E-A-C-T. And by saying the R-E together, I've signaled there's a prefix and the A-C-T in the base, I announced the graphemes or the marker letters. So A-C-T are all singular graphemes. Reach is itself a base. So to announce its structure would be R-E-A-C-H. So there actually isn't uh, an E grapheme in reach. There's an E-A, right? And there's not an A grapheme in reach, there's an E-A. But in React, there's an E grapheme and an A grapheme. And there's no C in reach, there's a C-H. And we, so we have to separate between what are letters and what are graphemes or we totally confuse people. Um, and the spelling out. So when that when the when I asked this when I asked the student before he tried to deal with sound, do you see? I asked him to look for structure, and and it was the structure, the morphological structure of the base and the prefix that allowed him to understand the phonology. You can't understand how graphemes and phonemes work absent phonology, absent morphology because graphemes happen within morphemes by definition. If you write, you know, the word um, mishap, it's not mishap. Right. And how do we know that? Well, even if we don't know it, we know there's an MIS prefix and it turns out there's an HAP bound base. Right. And, 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 you know, happy. Uh, and happy, there you go. And, and if you have, um, you know, a hothouse isn't a hothouse. And, and how do we know this? We know this because mature readers are analyzing structure all the time. They just don't know it. And once you see house, you can't think there's a TH in hothouse. Right. Um, so, so, but you notice when you analyze like hothouse would be H-O-T-H-O-U-S-E. And so now you've just seen there's an O-U digraph in there. So there's no way in which this looking for structure ignores phonology it's central you have to identify what are the graphemes within the base and you, you can deal with them in the affixes too but but this idea of highlighting these structures but the point being that sounding out from left to right absent structure causes confusion right and it doesn't let kids access all of this great other knowledge that they have and the other tools that they could they could draw from well absolutely i mean yeah. you know one of the things that um, is known or is, you know, you know, associated with, with dyslexics is a phonemic awareness 
deficit. So we identify that um, something that kids, uh, who, if you measure them on phonemic awareness tasks, phonological awareness tasks, when, before they go to school and they, um, they're not good at, at, you know, a lesion and all these things like saying cat without the k or with all those tasks, they find out that those kids struggle three years later. And I don't doubt that that's true. Um, the thing that we have to remember is what was the only leverage by which we gave those kids a means to learn to read or write during those years? Well, the only, we put all the leverage for their learning on the one thing we just identified was their, was their processing deficit. Right. But dyslexics don't have deficits in critical thinking or problem solving or in making connections or in thinking laterally that is beautifully done with scientific inquiry of word structure with the matrix and the word sum. So um, what we don't know is how, you know, and that kid was a perfect example. He's a grade eight kid reading at a grade four level. He does what he's told and he gets it wrong. I give, I give him a tiny little bit of looking at structure and he gets it right. Yeah. Because, because the structure makes sense. Um, so it isn't surprising that, I mean, here's, and this is actually, you know, some good background perhaps for um, understanding the research side of all this stuff. Um, you know, it has, there was this whole reading wars between whole language and, 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 and phonics kind of things that went on for so long. And um, I am, you know, I have no doubt that when we teach kids and instruction which had kids not look inside words, instruction that had kids not look at the internal structures, even if they weren't the full structures. But if you try to do whole word instruction, I'm I'm no, I'm not surprised that more kids learned to read when they were given instruction in a sound letter correspondence, and the evidence totally backs that up. But the thing is, the fact that the evidence that A is more successful than B actually is not, not says nothing about C. Um, and so one of the things that happened, unfortunately, is that like in, the, in 1990, um, there's a very, uh, a book that becomes a seminal book in the research um, that Marilyn Adams beginning to read. And, it, and it, she's really making this case um, and she has every right to show that the evidence is that when we're teaching kids about sound letter correspondence, they're doing better than when they, we don't. So let's do it. Um, totally fair. But then she makes a suggestion and it's not her suggestion. It exactly. I mean, I'm sure it's reflecting the thinking of the time, but she, she says in there, um, teaching morphology may be a, wor a worthwhile challenge, but for the upper grades, but she says it may be a mistake to uh, do this with the younger and less able kids. And it, it's, it's fine to put out a hypothesis. Um, the problem is, is that is a hypothesis that was not tested. And so it just became kind of the, the, the air that people breathe for, for decades of, well, morphology, that's for the later kids, you know, um, but it turns out you can't understand the phonology unless you do the morphology. 
So when would you suggest that teachers start teaching morphology? Well, the funny thing is that that hypothesis that was, you know, reinforced, like the National Reading Panel, all the other research that came out, they, they, they kept basically finding the same thing that Adams put out in 1990, but they never made any suggestion about teaching morphology. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, the first time that hypothesis was tested was in 2010. And when the meta-analyses started coming out, and what we found was that not only was there not support for that hypothesis, in fact, the evidence was the opposite. So in the meta-analysis that I was involved in, um, we actually compared um, and we found the preschool to grade two intervention studies with morphology, the gains were always equal and usually better. And we found for the less able, the gain, that was where the biggest gains were, the less able gained the most. And every other meta-analysis since has is confirming this what this is what is so if we're going to go by the research the research suggests we should teach morphology from the beginning which is you know shouldn't be surprising because how else should we teach the writing system other than represent how it actually works right so what would that what would that look like in a in a in a classroom with young students um, what would an introductory morphology lesson look like well one thing that i'll point people to is um there's a, a, a blog by a friend of mine, Nan Anderson, called Beyond the Word um, that is linked on my website, and you can link to it. And she has been teaching, you know, I think three-year-olds <laughs> up to grade two for like a decade working with this. And she's just a spectacular teacher of young kids and teachers of teachers. Um, and that's one of the things that she has found over this decade of working with real spelling and stuff every year is a, just a deeper recognition that it's morphology where you start. So I, you know, it's hard to do some of this uh, just in audio, but, but you can, the basic idea is pretty clear. You sit down, I go to schools all the time, sit in a circle. We can say, um, so we're going to talk about words. This is a, we're sitting on a carpet. This is my shirt. There's a light, there's a window um, at recess. You like to play. And I point out that these are all words I've picked. They're special words. They're, they're called base words. <clears throat> and we talk about what a base is. You go around, well, this is a base holding up that computer. This is a base holding up that. So in the, in the, in the world, when we talk about bases, usually we're talking about building up on, on a base. But with words, we don't build up. We build in front and after. And I'm holding my fist that, as if you can see it. Um, that the, the fist is kind of for the base. And then I use two fingers in front of or after the signal prefixes and suffixes. And I say, well, one thing to know is that every word you're ever going to meet is either a base or a base or something fixed to it. But you can't have a word if you don't have a base. But so let's take some of those words. So, you know, at recess, you like to play. Yeah. But I can't say where you play at recess. What would I have to say? And kids are experts in their own language so they can say playing and if they're ESL kids or something they don't know to say playing well I teach them so I, I wouldn't say um where you play at recess I said were you playing and now I as I say play I'm holding my fist and as I say ing I have my two fingers after the fist and so we say playing ah well can we fix ing to the end of anything else to make new words and the kids are jumping running playing so we we just make explicit the structures of words that they already know and, but we don't just add ing to play. What else would we do? Well, it's a playful kitty, you know? And, and if you see the, did you see the goal last night in the game? And right after they showed, what do they show? They showed the, how the replay. 
So you see how we can fix things in front of words and we still have the play in there and the idea of play is in there, but now it's, it's affected by fixing these things. Oh, and, and you know what? The things that we fix in front are called prefixes and the fix after suffixes. So we, we do that. Um, one of the things that's been really powerful in my workshops is taken directly from Lynn where she has a, in, you know, after reading some books with kids and she's planting the seeds to work on a particular word family. Um, so the kids already have encountered the word in stories and in various forms. Um, so let's say that she's planning to teach uh, the family uh, P-L-A-Y. Um, so she has a word bag and we, they gather around and say, okay, so we ask, you know, might ask kids, what are families to describe what families are? I mean, no moms and dads and brothers and sisters. Often they live in a house. Often they share a last name. They, not always, but there's, we know that there, we know what families are. We know how they're connected, related. Um, and so she can say, well, it turns out words come in families too. So what the game is, is we're going to go in this word bag. I have a word family in here and your job is going to be to figure out what the name of the family is. So she, the kid pulls out and again, the kid doesn't have to be able to read the word to play this game, but they have heard the word and they know the meaning because she's planted that. So you pull out the first kid pulls out the word playful. Ah, oh, that's the word playful. And you say, okay, well, and we use it in a sentence of here's the word replay. Here's the word playing. Here's the word, uh, playmate and and you keep coming out and you arrange them in a kind of a web around a central question mark and that central question mark is where the name of the family is going to go and along the way you're asking kids if they think you know top your head if you think you know the name of the family and the kids are basically no they're thinking what's well, play you know dummy and uh so finally you get to the end and you ask them so what what do you think of the name of this family is and they say play and they say well okay but why do you say that and they say Things like, well, because it's in all the words. Okay, but what about play is in all the words? And what you're, what you're driving at is that the idea, the meaning of play is in all the words. You know, if you're playful, you're playing. And if a replay is like, you get to see the play again. And the meaning is in there, but also the spelling is. So, in fact, I say that the name of the family is P-L-A-Y. And you can hear how I'm saying it. And I'm usually, I kind of give a tap for each graphing. So a, a P-L-A-Y. And you're tapping those um, with your hand onto your forearm. On my arm or my leg or something. Okay. I, some, somewhere. And I'm trying to get, now how do you spell it? And they might spell it P-L-A-Y. And they say, ah, I spell it differently. And now they're very curious because, I mean, they know the names of the letters. And if they don't, this is a good time to teach them. Um, but. They, they can see the difference that I'm putting the A-Y together. And then I say, well, why is it? Well, everybody say plea. Sorry, everybody say play. So you go ahead and you say play. Play. Now feel the beginning of play. Play. Just feel the very, ah, there it is. So you get the class to go p and not right. p because there's no uh in play. It's not play. So you make sure you, oh, you feel your lips go p. Well, how do we write the p in play? With a P. Okay, say play again. You play. Now say play without the p. Lay. Okay, what do you feel the beginning of lay? Ooh. Ooh. How do we write the ul in, in play? With the letter L. There you go. And now say lay. Lay. W without the ul. A. Ah, so how do we write the A in play? Uh, well, we could do it lots of ways, but here we're going to do it A-Y. 
and they've and they're looking at the letters and i've made them say a y a bunch of times so by the time you get here they've already been saying a y so now they know that a y is a way of writing a and there's nothing mysterious about it there's you know this could be the first lesson and i i purposely picked a word that had a digraph because one of the one of the foundational concepts we want kids to know from the beginning in terms of phonology orthographic phonology is that Graphemes are one, two, or three letter combinations that uh, can represent a phoneme. They should know, we need to show them right away that most phonemes can represent, be represented by more than one grapheme. Most graphemes can represent more than one phoneme, and graphemes happen within morphemes. Um, so when they see an AY, there's something weird about having two letters, and, and, but oftentimes teaching programs will hold off on teaching digraphs and trigraphs as if it's, mm -hmm somehow more complicated they're esoteric yeah i know yes. and it's, yeah. it's it's just amazing try to write a sentence with only single letter graphemes it is a painful process because it turns out there's way more digraphs than there are single letter graphemes hmm. it's, it's not even close so you know the t-h-e and so if, if you know like write a sentence without the or you know all it's, it's just crazy um so and how do we get, how do we expose kids to these graphemes? Well, you know what, one way is to just make sure you're explicit about them. If I spell the word the, I spell it T-H-E. And the word teach is T-E-A-C-H. And, you know, play is P-L-A-Y. And back is B-A-C-K. So you are surrounded by C-Ks, T-Hs. You, you, that's part of the language that you were encountering. The kids are getting taught the names of the letters at the same time they're being taught the names of the graphemes because you're learning to announce them. And then in your script, when you practice your script, you, you practice in the graphemes and the morphemes that you're going to encounter. You're building representations, motor memory accessed uh, representations of the real structures of print, which are graphemes and morphemes. Um, so there's no lack of emphasis of the role of phonology in any of this is central, but you need to do it within the morphological structure or you won't, won't make sense of it. So then you've, we've done this with play. The kids see that that's the spelling and the meaning that's in them. And then you can do other activities. Well, now you look, now you go on treasure hunts looking for other words that you can add with play and you find interesting things that kids will say things like, um, they'll try to put fun there. Well, cause the meaning is there, ah, but it's not the spelling and you know, plain, oh, which plain, but Oh, it doesn't have the spelling. And actually the meaning is different, isn't it? Um, and then there's fun ones like display come up where it looks like it might work, but what does display have to do with play? So you, that one you have to leave for a little while until you can figure out how do we test the meaning difference? Um, and it turns out when people follow this work up, um, they'll learn about a structure and meaning test. Um, and the, the that way that works is that for two words to be in the same morphological family, in fact, the same orthographic morphological family, which means they can be in the same matrix, that means they have to share the spelling of the base, which we've just introduced in this little preschool or kindergarten class with this play web. Um, they have to share the spelling, but they also have to share the meaning. And the, the, you, test the, you test the spelling with the word sum, and you test the meaning by with origin. And so you have to start to look into word origin books and you find out if the if the root, the root origin of the word um, isn't the same, it can't go in the same matrix. And display turns out to go back to a, a root, I think it's placare, for, for fold. 
So to display is to unfold. Well, it has nothing to do with playing outside, which is, a, I think, an old English word. And it has, no, so you can, you can have this hypothesis, but you have a means of testing it. And I, oh, sorry. I just wanted to say a little thing about your hypothesis part, this idea, you keep talking about it. And what's this advantage that you found with that kids and adults have hypotheses? Mm. Um, what's that benefit there? Right. Well, th this is, you know, when we were talking about this before, the, the, um, this is really what got me going um, because we believe that spelling is crazy because we've accepted assumptions of others and never thought to test it. And we never felt like we had a reason to test it because when we were told that it was crazy and then we see examples of spelling being crazy according to that hypothesis, we just, oh, I, there's no reason to look. Yeah. But that's why the matrix and the word sum change things because all of a sudden the word does can be made sense of. And like, I've never seen anybody ever in any, any domain outside of real spelling articulate that does is a totally conforming spelling. So could you tell us a little bit more about how, say, maybe a word matrix or a word sum could help us understand yeah. that does is not actually yeah. a regular word? And we'll do this and, then, and, we'll, and we'll get back to the and we'll see how, talk about how it's science that's clarifying. Right. And then, and then why this hypothesis testing business is central to making sense of any domain. Um, so with does, which everybody thinks is crazy, um, there's a series of questions that uh, I encourage people to ask, and it, it's on the website and all that. But and I get it from real spelling. Um, but the first question you should be asking if you're if you're trying to understand a spelling is what does the word mean? Yeah, that's because these aren't teaching things. Like these are. That's because the primary job of English spelling is to represent the meaning of words. So the first thing you got to do is what it mean. If I ask you to write the if I ask you to write the word here, you don't you can't even start until you tell me which word it is. So you have to know, so does, okay, so she does her homework. So now I know you know what it means, okay. Um, then you ask, how is it built? Well, she does her homework, I... Do my homework. Ah, so when you ask this question, you realize, when you look at the structure, that is does complex or is it a base? Well, it turns out it has a base. And the base is what? D-O. Oh, very good. Because I was hoping you were going to say do, and then I oh. could say... But you, no, I, no, you, you, no, it's perfect. But, but you see that you want people to make the mistake, but, you, but you, you've learned this, so you know. So that it's not do, it's D-O. And the reason you can't say do is because you don't hear do and does. And it's that, la it's that focusing on the pronunciation that is what's getting in our way. If we say D-O-E-S, there's no messing about with thinking there's an O-E in does. Of course there's not, because it's the base D-O plus E-S. You can't, say, you can't say the O-E together. There's a plus sign in there, or there's a line in the matrix. And then you can say, well, I do, she does, I am doing, and I'm done. And so now we have an N-E there. So what's, is there really an N-E suffix? Well, how do we know there's any suffix? How do we know I-N-G is a suffix? Well, we have doing and jumping and running and playing. Ah, you fix I-N-G on the end of a few things. That's your evidence that it's a suffix. The same letter or letter sequence being used for the same purpose, fixed to other structures that you can make sense of. And there's, we have ES, well, we have teach, teaches, you know, it's not, it's not a biggie. Um, but NE seems weird until you realize, well, go goes going gone. The GO is, the NE is fixed to the GO base. And the thing that this reveals, that matrix, and if hopefully you can show that, that combination of matrices when people see this, because it's really powerful. The point is, this is what has been missing. 
And this is what's not possible to do if you don't have morphology as, as the organizing structure of un your understanding of the writing system. And that is this, is that you can't know how any morpheme is pronounced until it's in a word. This is Carol Chomsky in 1970. It's not new information. You know, she recommended this in 1970. We just didn't listen. And she's got a point. How do you know how the base D-O is pronounced? Well, you don't until it's in a word. It might be do, it might be duh. And same with go. It might be go, it might be ga, or ga for gone. And so you get used to, and what's the, and the, the a really nice thing is with the ED suffix. If you give people the played, jumped, and painted, and you ask them what's the suffix in that, everybody says ED. Nobody tries to pronounce it because they know it would be absurd to say t d or id. Well, it's not that that's a special suffix. It's like any morpheme, you, you can't count on its pronunciation until it's in a word. And that's a word that you're an English speaker who happens to know that word, right? So that, that, that's how these things work. It's not just the ED suffix that's like that. You should approach any morpheme as if it could have multiple pronunciations, but the same spelling. And if it's a, if it's a base, if it's a morphemic element. So anyways, so when you look at that matrix and that you realize, wait a second, if everybody says does is irregular, but we can now understand it. Again, this is this, this gets back to the science idea that it doesn't, I don't need some, it, it's not who says it. It's what, what is scientific inquiry seeks the, seeks the deepest structures that accounts for the greatest number of cases. It's not a personal thing. It's an understanding thing. And if person X offers a description that accounts for more data, scientists are supposed to accept the, the hypothesis that explains the most data. And every scientific conclusion is pending further information. Hmm. So everything is like that. Um, but the problem is, once you, if you don't have the word sum, if you don't know that morphemes can change your pronunciation in English but keep the same spelling, and you just teach at the sound level, you can't understand any of that, and therefore you have exceptions. Well, here's the thing. If a scientist presents a hypothesis that has many exceptions, hmm. you're not supposed to blame the data. You're supposed to change the hypothesis it does, in any domain. So once you, anybody presents uh, exceptions, we should say, wait a second, maybe the reason that isn't working is because your hypothesis is wrong. And, and that's why we switch. That's why we move to hypothesis two that the primary job is meaning representation. That hypothesis is supported by every spelling investigation I've ever done. Um, so that's why I'm convinced. I'm not convinced because somebody said it because it works. Um, an analogy that I use sometimes is that um, everyone has seen a map of Africa that was like, you know, those early maps when the, People are doing, trying to find the, a route to Asia and they, they, a couple boats have gone down there and it looks all wonky. And you, you can tell it kind of looks like Africa, but it, you laugh because oh, look how bad that map is. Um, well, my view is that that's how reading instruction and research has been going on for a long time. It's like we're sailing in a ship around Africa with one of those early maps. And we look at the map and we look at what we can see with the land and then we blame the land for being in the wrong place, right? Because our map says it's supposed to be there. Well, if your map says does is irregular, but then you can see a matrix and you can see that it's not, I guess we've got to change our map. That, it's that simple. But it's, 
But when you've lived your whole life thinking, looking at the world a certain way, it's hard to get, it's hard to shift. There's no doubt. That's why kids have a much easier time. I swear when I go to schools, it, kids have a much easier time. They have less to unlearn. Right. So those, those teachers who do have some to unlearn, and I, I know I'm in the middle of my process of doing I'm it. I'm still what unlearning. Do you, <laughs> what do you recommend for teachers if they, if they want to have a deeper understanding of morphology and they see that this can be really powerful for their students and just for their own um, intellectual well, lives? What do you recommend? Well, I mean, you know, uh, to, I, I'm convinced that the working with analyzing words with word sums and matrices, spelling out word structure is really a foundational entry point. Okay, um, so just time on task, and we'll put up some different videos with links to, mm -hmm. to you doing those two practices. Yeah, now, you know, so I have, you know, the Real Spelling website has an, um, uh, uh, I mean, the, has a toolbox, which you can get, but it also just has a gallery, Real Spelling Gallery. Um, and that's a good place to start. It's free. You can just, you can go in there and um, look at representations of how these structures work. There's, there's films on morphology, phonology, etymology, these conventions. So there's a it's like it's like an encyclopedia of how the writing system works. Um, so that's a like that's a place to get deep understanding. Um, and I have I have resources on my website. Uh, the that blog I mentioned of Len Anderson's there is um, there, and then on my website there's a whole link to uh, teacher blogs of teachers around the world and just watch those I mean the kids are just doing astounding things they so these teachers have videos of their of their kids running you know, doing this stuff and it, you just you will just be awestruck at the energy, the love of learning that's going on in these classrooms where they're fighting understanding. There's one particular video, maybe I'll send you this link, that is Mary Beth Stevens was um, a grade four teacher, public school, Wisconsin, who happened upon Dan Allen's blog one weekend. And as she says, she lost her weekend because she just went back through every archive video and just couldn't believe it. And so within a month, she had her own blog going. And at the end of her second year of working with this stuff, she just asked her kids to, to describe what their experience was this year with structured word inquiry, with, with studying uh, orthography. And it's just astonishing listening to these kids talk because they nail it all the way through. And what's wonderful is they, have, they say, when I used to study spelling, but now orthography. It's just amazing. So spelling was this thing that they sucked at, that, that, that there was memorization. It didn't help. It was confusing. Orthography, the way they talk about it, it's this, it's just, they, they're so excited and they can prove things and they, they, they're not the kid they were before. They're, there's all these statements. It's just beautiful. So I'll, I'll send you that link. But um, so explore that stuff. There is uh, a tools for making matrices. There's the mini matrix maker and there's a word microscope um, that are both, uh, the, the mini matrix maker is a very simple tool for making matrices. Um, you have to have some knowledge to use it though because it doesn't give you any structure. Um, the word microscope is on my page as a video of how to use it. It gives you guidance of structure. Um, and actually for people trying to figure out what's this structure and meaning test, following the links to watch the video of how that works actually takes you through a steps of, of that kind of investigation. It only works on PCs. So, but even if you're on a Mac, um, 
which I am, uh, you can watch the video just get a sense of how, how it works. So there's there's lots of there's lots of tools there. The main thing is it's just a what what and back to the science thing that you know at the beginning we were talking is like you know, people often think that I'm a I must be you know crazy uh, passionate about the spelling system. And it's, it's not really that it's, it's, a, it's really about, um, critical thinking, problem solving that has always been my passion in teaching. So teaching is what I'm excited about. The spelling system is fascinating, but, but what I've just been convinced of is that, you know, it is by far the richest context I can imagine for teaching to support critical thinking. And in part, that's because we've got it so wrong. Um, in, in, you know, I love teaching science. I love teaching math. I love teaching novels, you know, geography, social studies, all that stuff. But it was always about, you know, critical thinking, right? Um, inquiry. But what I realized is that it wasn't until I started to work with the writing system that we ever started actually doing science because, and what I mean by that is this, is that in science, Class. You, I love teaching states of matter with kids. You know, you, you understand how heat energy works and molecular theory and all that stuff. You do cool activities, cool experiments, and kids get into it. But the thing is, they know at the end that they've just learned something that the teacher knew in the first place. Hmm. So, it, which is good to do. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, but you're teaching about doing science. You're not doing science. When you get to the writing system, it, it's, you move into what I call inquiry-led teaching, which is when a kid asks a question to which you do not know the answer, and you apply the principles that you've been learning. So the book that I have that teaches these processes is a way of learning you know, the mechanics. You, it gives you uh, the suffixing changes, how morphemes work, how it interrelations, interrelates with the phonology, all this stuff. But that's a mechanics. That's that's teacher-led inquiry where you know the answer because you've got the instructions, and, and it's a good thing to do. But what, the thing is great about it is that when a kid then asks you a question to which you don't know the answer, and that's when you get to say, "I don't know. Let's check it out." And you ask the same questions: What does it mean? How is it built? What are the relatives? What's the pronunciation that matter? And then you and 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 you won't find it. You won't come to a conclusion every time. But you will understand much every time, and and you now you've actually done science because you've used scientific principles to come to an understanding. And the key there is that we what we haven't had when we accept that spelling is crazy. We ex once we accept that there are exceptions, what we are really doing is we're rejecting science. And the reason I say it sounds harsh, but it's it I don't know what else to say. It is central to science that you can have that your hypotheses can be falsified. You can't have science without falsification. And if you have a hypothesis that spelling is about sound, but it's full of exceptions, well, those exceptions are supposed to be your flag to look at your hypothesis. But when you accept them as exceptions, you've rejected falsification. Once you real, once you work with the stuff a little bit, and you start to see that I can actually show that I, that TION is never fixed to anything in a way that makes sense, you can reject a false hypothesis. And the problem is, any domain you can't understand if you never have a means 
of finding out you're on a false path. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, there's the only way we move forward in understanding is by shedding false ideas. And there's nothing wrong with having a false hypothesis. But what is a problem is if we don't have a way of getting rid of it. And without a word sum in a matrix, without understanding what the coherent suffixing changes are and how pronunciation changes and the morphemes keep the spelling, you, someone says, does this crazy? Well, what am I going to say? Of course it's crazy. But then in two seconds, you can see a matrix and go, oh my God, that makes sense. And what I would say to um, you know, the folks out there is that you know, if you take a look at, at you know, my website, Lynn's website, Real Spelling, these teachers' blogs, this is... There's no one person in charge here. There's no program. Um, It's just a bunch of people applying the principles of scientific inquiry, seeking the deepest structures that account for the greatest number of cases, whoever says it, um, to deepen our understanding. And and the Real Spellers website where people share questions and answer questions um, that is also where you can find all these teacher blogs. Um, It's a community of people deepening the understanding. And that's how any domain is supposed to work. But if you, that, the thing that would kill any, any progress in understanding is not having a way of rejecting the false hypotheses. And if you don't have a word sum in a matrix, I just don't see how you can possibly do it. Um, so though, that's really the entry point. And if you, if, if you, if you, you know, listen to this little podcast and you look at a few matrices related to it and such, and some words make sense to you that previously didn't. That's actually all the evidence you need to know that there's something worth looking here. Because if you've had a career for 10, 20 years, five years, whatever, and you've just been an adult, whether you've had training at all, if words that you've always assumed are crazy are understandable through using these tools, we should check and see if they make sense of other things. And that's the way that this stuff starts. Actually, I did just put out a, a newsletter that's free that, that is really about getting started. I'll, so the latest newsletter there that I should link to you. And that's really, that's kind of the, in, the intro to this stuff because what was wild that was, you know, it was really, I don't know, affirming or whatever is I went on all these schools and I kept running into people who it was like, I went to this school in Sheku, China, which I didn't know anything about one teacher had gone to a two-day workshop the year before and another teacher had been to one a few years before that and they were just you know fascinated but didn't really understand what to do but they got their school to get me to come and then i get there and there's three teachers from three different schools that i've worked with just by random chance they just come there and they happen to be at schools that i worked at years ago and i haven't been in correspondence with them and each of them have been doing this full on ever since, because when you have understanding, it endures. You can't go back to un-understanding it. And so they are, they've been doing it ever since. And then I go to the next school, why did, that, why did that school invite me? Because one person came to a two day workshop and they'd been doing it ever since and they finally got enough people around them to say, let's see if we can get some PD. And the next school, same thing. So individual teachers, coming to an understanding if you apply scientific inquiry your understanding deepens there's no hurry for answers but there is a hurry to start but there's no hurry to get anywhere once you start working with word sums and matrices this idea of the homophone principle and you start to see that actually spelling makes sense 
it, or even just have the sense that it might make sense is a reason to inquire. You have no motivation to inquire into an irregular system. You can't inquire into a random thing. It would be stupid, right? Um, but once you have a sense that there might be an answer, now you can. Now there's a reason to inquire. And if you have the actual linguist, these these tools, by the way, the the word sum. That's not like a new teaching tool. That's what linguists use to analyze structure of words. So it's it's like having a you know it's like having a meter stick to measure distance. We have we have we have word sums to measure structure of words. Um, why would we, we wouldn't do math without the right tools. Why would we do English without the right tools? Um, and, and, and it's the same reason. You have to be able to reject false assumptions. Right. That's great, Pete. So I love this idea that we don't need to be in a rush to, to master, but no. we need to be in a rush maybe to get started and that's, to that's, try, try something new. And I want to recommend um, your book. So maybe you could talk really briefly about that. Because um, that's been a wonderful resource for me. Well, good. Um, I'm, you know, working by myself trying to figure all of this out. Right. Well, that that kind of came out of um, I did an intervention study in in graduate school, which was the re I ended up going there because I couldn't I couldn't get anybody to listen to <laughs> to me, and so I was determined to do an intervention study. So I did an intervention study with grade four and five kids, um, experimental group, control group, and taught twenty lessons. Um, about morphology and analyzing with word sums and matrices and understanding the pronunciation change, all that spelling out stuff. And then we compared them at the end and we found out that um, uh, the, the results we've published and the, the, all the, this is up on the website, um, that we found generative vocabulary gains for the experimental group which is in vocabulary research, that's a hard thing to find where you you get kids getting better definitions for words that you didn't actually teach. But what, what that was, was that they were words that they had, they had been encountered the base in a matrix or something, but not in the combination with the words that they measured. So sign S I G N is one of the, the first matrix. And so I taught a bunch, they get exposed to about 18 words on that matrix taught specifically about three signal signal assignment signature so but i never in, mentioned the word significant and kids would be better at be defining a word like significant even if they weren't taught it because they had a sense of the base they could make a connection um we also in the actual in the in the thesis we got effects for reading and spelling and such i just haven't gotten around to publishing but Anyways, so there's specific vocabulary evidence on that study, uh, and there's more to it than that, but what happened was a friend of mine was do, trying to get started, so I just get, started giving him lessons I did in my intervention study, and he found them useful. So I started to, that's Scott Caldwell, by the way, who's been doing one of the center of this thing for a long time. And uh, so I finally realized, well, I should just put these lessons together with, you know, description of them. So when you work with it, you get, it's the kind of thing where you should, you only need to read like a little bit ahead of what you're doing with the kids. Because it, you know, if you, if you work with a matrix, there's certain questions that pop up. So I introduce those as you do. And so when you encounter, when you do, you have, you can do a teacher led inquiry because you kind of know the questions are going to come up and you get your head around the main ideas and then you investigate with the kids and it takes you through hypothesizing and testing the suffixing changes, 
uh, bound bases, twin bases, connecting vowel letters, and the, and the pronunciation shift. And so at the end of that, you have all the mechanics, but it also points to real spelling resources. The goal for me is that somebody would um, not just go page by page, but do something, take a tangent, come back. And you have this kind of, this arc of what are the morphological connections, but that you can still follow the kid's interest and, and your interest as you go. Um, so that is teaching how the written word works. And that's kind of an easy scaffolding. My hope is if you worked with that, that you would, you would kind of enter the wider community and use the real spelling and all these other resources. Great. Great. Well, I know you've got um, a workshop again tomorrow, Pete. You've had a whirlwind um, fall with all sorts of traveling. Um, any last advice you'd like to leave us with today? I think this has been such a fruitful conversation and I hope it, it really helps people shift their thinking about how they approach spelling and vocabulary and just words. Well, I guess, I mean, there's one thing that, you know, it's, it's important to recognize that in fact, um, the research, one thing is to recognize if there is good research now suggesting we should be doing this from the beginning and it's most important for less able and there's good reason to understand that. That um, those who are struggling currently, what they're doing is they're telling us, don't keep doing what you're doing, I need something else. So, you know, I know people have a lot of skepticism about teaching morphology in the beginning, but before you accept that assumption, test it out. Um, and there's lots of resources to try it. Um, and by the way, that research that is that we have is based on instruction that I think has real problems. They aren't using matrices and word sums, and I can't imagine teaching morphology without them. Uh, so there's a long way to go there. But more importantly is just the focus that you need to do is your own understanding. So you, when you work with my book or your website or any of these things, first start by seeing what you can understand. And then whatever you understand, you are now able to share with your kids. Right. And you don't have to go farther than that. Um, it's, there's lots of, you, you, you're, the part of making, the, learning this stuff is making mistakes, but having a way to find out what your mistakes are with your kids. Um, I, I, will, I do say, and you know, I don't know if it ever makes any sense, but there's many ways to folks who haven't been doing it yet, um, there's many ways in which I'm a better teacher of this stuff now than I was when I started, but I think there are critical ways in which I'll never be as good as I was in my first year. And the reason that, that is that you can't pretend to be discover this, right? You can, you make mistakes and all that stuff, but kids, once you give kids the tools, they teach you and they see that you are learning with them. And they're, they're, it, it's hard to think of what could be a better learning experience for a kid then when they ask the question to which you did not know the answer and then you investigate it and then they find the answer because you started using the science. Um, actually, I can, I, you know, I have a, the line to end on. I got an email from this Mary Beth the other day and it's just the best thing. She, so she said, she said to the kids to take out their science notebooks. And so one of the kids just said, what do you, do you, do you mean the, the spelling books or the other one? which is perfect. So to them, science, spelling is just science and they, they don't know how to separate it. And that's exactly what it is. This is just science class. It happens to be one the domain that we're studying is the orthography system. I think that's a great place to start. Place to start. Right. <laughs> that's, right. that's perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Pete. All right. Very good. I'll, I'll send you the floor. Thank you for listening. I hope you're inspired by these ideas. 
There's a lot of great resources that Pete mentions, and you can find them at baytreeblog.com slash podcasts and search for this episode. Structured word inquiry is incredibly powerful. If there's an educator in your life who'd benefit from these strategies, please share this podcast with them. Also, we would love to hear from you, our listeners. So let us know what you think. You can find us at baytreeblog.com slash Facebook. We'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again.